may be seated. <clears throat> Testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. This morning we're going to be talking about wisdom and um, what the scriptures, particularly James, has to say about wisdom. Let me, as we begin, take a, a second and just review what we talked about last week. Last week, we, we spoke about God's strategy, his plan for maturing and growing us up into Christ-likeness. And we said there was an equation that went something like this, that God brings trials into our lives, difficulties and circumstances that take us to the end of our rope. They're difficult circumstances. And those difficult trials, those circumstances, test our faith. In the testing of the, our faith we wrestle with truth. We, we, we wrestle with God. And we come to the foundational, experiential realization that what we believe is true. And then we hang on to that truth. We persevere in that truth. We endure in that truth. We are steadfast. And I used the word tough yesterday, last Sunday to talk about this equation that there are trials and, and then there's the truth and then there's the toughness that brings about transformation. And that equation is not unique to, to James. Paul says it this way, this is Romans chapter three. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character. You see that process? That's, that's God's strategy for transformation. That's what he's going to do, or perhaps that's what he's doing in your life right now. A trial, you come to that place where you wrestle with truth, and then you, you endure. You, you, you tough it out, and God brings about transformation. So according to James, God's goal is that we would be perfect, complete, not lacking any quality, not lacking any character that would reflect the likeness of Jesus in our lives. We are his workmanship, and he is at work in our lives. This work is accomplished sometimes because we recognize the right thing to do and we choose to do it. And a lot of times, in my experience, as I told you last week, I, I'm a slow learner. I learn the hard way often. God has to discipline me, take me through valleys in order to transform and change me. And I really resonate with that very, very famous quote by C.S. Lewis that says that God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. And I don't know if your life has reflected that, but, but I'll tell you, mine sure has, and I'm thankful that that's been the case. So steadfastness, toughness, endurance, perseverance in the trial is the key to growth. So, the key to growth is steadfastness. What's the key to steadfastness? H how do we maintain steadfastness, perseverance? We're not naturally steadfast. I said last week that if you're like me, you're more inclined to look for an escape from a trial rather than to endure a trial. Escape is much more palatable, at least in my experience. But this is not the wisest approach. If what I just said is true, and if steadfastness is part of the equation that brings about character and maturity and transformation, 
then it's very unwise to be, to look for an escape. So I think that's why James now turns his attention to the whole issue of wisdom. The whole issue of wisdom. And I don't think he's changed his, his flow of thought at all. And I'll explain that in a second. In James chapter 5, verse 1, he says, But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. And so clearly he begins to talk about wisdom. And I think he's talking about the wisdom that allows us to remain steadfast. Allows us to endure the difficulties. Allows us to tie a, a knot when we're at the end of our rope and just hang on to that truth or those truths that God has confirmed in our hearts. So what is wisdom? You probably could find a lot of very, very erudite, theologically dense definitions, but here's mine, because I'm a pretty simple guy. Wisdom is knowing the right course of action and choosing to take it. That's what I think wisdom is. It's knowing the right course of action and choosing to take it. Knowing the right course of action and not doing it is not very wise. Knowing the right course of action and doing it is wisdom. And in the Bible's parlance, the opposite of wisdom is foolishness. And it's foolishness and our foolish choices that often will short-circuit the process of God's maturing us. Often short-circuit the process of our being steadfast. It's foolishness that inclines us to look for an escape. I was listening to um, R.C. Sproul this morning on the way over here and he he said something I thought was quite funny and it was kind of pertinent to what I'm going to share with you right now, so I, I'll share it with you. He says, um, marriage is like playing bridge. To begin, you need two hearts and a diamond. But after a while, you realize that you need two clubs and a spade. <laughs> and I got to tell you, my marriage was that. I got married to a wonderful woman, and after the first year, we both realized that we had fallen out of love. And it wasn't fun at all. And after one particularly uh, difficult conversation, um, we sat down and Cindy looked at me and she said, I don't love you anymore. And being a mature, godly man that I was, I said, well, I don't love you either. <laughs> and in the, that's agony. That's agony. I'm a youth pastor. I'm 26 years old, Christian. That's agony. And then Cindy, after a few minutes, looked at me, and this is wisdom. She says, we can't get divorced. We're Christians. We can't get divorced. We're Christians. So we started going to counseling, and God blessed our marriage, and we'll celebrate 40 years of marriage um, this coming, coming spring. But I'll tell you, my inclination was to get out of that relationship. My inclination was to run away, not to endure. But I'll tell you, marriage is wonderfully transformational. As we endure those difficulties, as we grow to become less selfish and less stubborn, less self-absorbed, God transforms us. As we endure the challenges, God changes us. Wisdom drives steadfastness. It drives endurance and perseverance. It nurtures and grows endurance. And this is what produces character in our lives. 
And in this passage of scripture that I'm going to read for you right now, James gives us wisdom about wisdom. He talks about wisdom and gives us wisdom about wisdom. He says four things. And so I'd like to read the passage. If you have your Bibles, please turn to James chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 2, and I'm going to read through verse 12. We're only going to focus on 5 through 11. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete or mature and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes so will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So, wisdom about wisdom. First of all, if we're going to have wisdom, we've got to have the wisdom to know that we're not naturally wise. That's the first thing that basically James says to us here. He says, if we lack wisdom, we should ask God and he will give it generously. God won't rebuke us for asking. He won't reproach us for asking. So the first key to finding wisdom is, I believe, recognizing that you don't have it. If any man doesn't have wisdom, any woman doesn't have wisdom, we should ask God for wisdom. I come, one of the other things I guess you should know about my family is uh, we're all type A personalities. And I mean really big type A personalities. And that was part of the challenge when we first got married. Firstborn children, uh, very strong in our opinions. Uh, and I'm talking type A, capital, bold, you know, 30 font type A, right? Uh, and so are my kids. So when my, my oldest daughter started driving, I noticed she had a keychain. And on her keychain, it says this I'm not bossy, I just have better ideas. <laughs> and, and that's kind of like typical of our family. We're not bossy, we just have, we have better ideas than you. We think we're pretty darn wise. <laughs> we assume that we are wise, and I think that's sort of a trait for all of us. We kind of assume that we kind of know. But listen, being intelligent is not wisdom. Having common sense isn't wisdom. Being intuitive is not wisdom. These things are, are wonderful, but they are not wisdom. And so understanding that we are not innately and inherently wise is the first step to attaining wisdom because if we don't understand that we're not wise, we're not going to ask. I think most of you know those, or you've maybe heard of those sort of the four levels of competency. Have you heard of the sort of those four quadrants? The first group are those who are consciously competent people. Like they know that they know. And those people are really good at what they do. And then you got a group who are unconsciously competent. They're, they are really gifted people. They're very, very few people are like this, but there's this group of people who are just unconsciously good at what they do. 
Then there's people who are consciously incompetent. They know that they don't know. They know that they can't do. And then the last is this really dangerous group of people who are unconsciously incompetent. They don't know that they don't know. And you don't want your pilot or your surgeon to be in this quadrant down here. They don't know that they don't know. And these are dangerous people because they don't ask for help. They don't seek wisdom. I remember a number of times men, good and godly men, would come onto the board of our church. And they, these guys were elected by the congregation. They were stellar men, godly men. And they would come on, and we sit down and start thinking about the budget, as an example. And the first question they would ask is, well, what's our revenue? And I would say, or some of the other elders on the board would say, that's not the question. The question is, what's the vision? What, what is it that God wants us to do this year? Because we believe that God's work and done in God's way will always have God's resources. So, so it wasn't about revenue stream. It was about faith. So that's a, that's a wisdom issue. And this godly guy who knew the word would have to be taught wisdom about how a budget is put together in the context of a church. We're not wise innately. It's not intuitive. It's something that God gives. When it comes to wisdom, a lot of us are unconsciously incompetent. We don't know that we don't know. And so we must accept that apart from God's wisdom, we are fools. Right? Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death or destruction. So the beginning of wisdom for all of us is to come to the place where we humbly admit that we don't know, that we, that we don't have the answers, that, that what our intelligence or our common sense or our intuition may tell us is not, in fact, wise. We must recognize that at the beginning. And if we don't, we'll never ask God. So secondly, what James says is, if any man lacks wisdom, any woman lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who will give generously, liberally, freely, and won't reproach when asked. The wisest man ever to live and I, and I really do love, actually, I'll, I'll read it to you. This, the wisest man to ever live, other than Jesus, was Solomon. And this is what he says. It's so profound. Proverbs 4, 7. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. <laughs> Isn't that great? The beginning of, you say, you're, you're kind of thinking something really profound is coming. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. And then he says this. And whatever you get, get insight. The beginning of wisdom is getting wisdom. And so we have a God who promises to give us wisdom if we ask. 
He won't reprove, he won't rebuke us for asking. But there's a problem. There's a problem. The wisdom of God is counterintuitive and countercultural. What God says is wise for us feels counterintuitive and sounds countercultural. And so as a result, sometimes God's wisdom doesn't seem all that wise. God's wisdom doesn't seem all that correct. Seems a little dubious, as a matter of fact, if you think about it. It appears a little obsolete, passe. It's kind of anachronistic. And the reason for this is that we live amongst a people whose inclination is to suppress the truth of God. It's to not seek the wisdom of God or the truth of God. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. There's an important passage of scripture that we need to think about in the context of wisdom. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, says this. Now, if you have your Bibles, I just encourage you to follow along. Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature being clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." Professing to be wise, they became fools because their inclination is, because of sin, to suppress the truth of God. And the tragedy of that is all around us in our culture. In James chapter 3, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks, but James chapter 3, James contrasts earthly wisdom with God's wisdom. James chapter 3, about verse 15 and so and following. He contrasts earthly wisdom with God's wisdom and says earthly wisdom is unspiritual and it is essentially demonic and stands in stark contrast to the wisdom of God. But the wisdom of the world does sound appealing in some respects. It does sound plausible especially since we live in a culture that is just beating the drum of worldly wisdom at us all the time in the media, in academia, and in government. We hear the wisdom of the world repeated so often that we begin to wonder if, in fact, it is wise. And as we live in this ethos of what God calls foolishness, the more foolish the wisdom of God can seem to us. Especially, as I said, when the wisdom of the world, when earthly wisdom sounds so prudent, so sensible, and so inclusive, and so loving at times. So, of course, live together before you get married. Just makes sense, doesn't it? My body, my choice. That makes a ton of sense. Monogamy is an antiquated idea. 
Here's one that I think Christians really struggle with. Children are an expensive inconvenience. Truth is relative. Gender is fluid. Morality is ambiguous. And all love is good love. And it could go on and on and on. And it sounds, on one level, profound and tolerant and good and loving and accepting. And as we're constantly bombarded by the media and by academia that advances these ideas of earthly wisdom, it's easy to believe, to, to be lured into the belief that earthly wisdom is in fact wise. And so my challenge to you is this. If you want to be wise, seek wisdom. But don't go to Oprah. Don't go to your non-Christian friends for wisdom. Go to your non-Christian friends and share them, share the gospel, love them. But don't go seeking wisdom. Don't go to the self-help section in the library or at the bookstore. Don't go to your horoscope. You're not going to find wisdom in any of those sources. So if you're going through a trial right now, and, and perhaps you are, God is testing you and you're wrestling with truth, understand this. I want you to hear this. God wants to give you wisdom. A wisdom that will allow you to persevere, to hang on, to tough it out in the circumstances that you're going through right now. A wisdom that will allow you not to throw in the towel, not to run away, not to quit, not to give up, but to persevere in the valley that God is leading you through. If you listen to the wisdom of the world, you're inevitably going, you're inevitably going to hear the idea that the fight isn't worth it anyway. And the best thing for you to do is just throw in the towel and give up. Move on. God gives wisdom to those, gives wisdom generously to those who seek it. So you got to know that you don't have wisdom. It's not innate. It's not intuitive. It's not wired into us naturally. If we want it, we've got to go to God because he is the source of wisdom. So the third point that James makes is this. We need wisdom to humbly embrace God's wisdom. We need to ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by wind. That person must not supposedly receive anything, any wisdom from the Lord, for he is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. We have to ask without doubting. We have to ask with confidence that when we do, we will receive the wisdom of God. But not doubting what? What is it that we are called not to doubt? I think the answer simply is this, that God is the source of all wisdom. He is the real source of wisdom. God and his word is the fountain of wisdom for us. But again, the other side of this coin that we were just talking about, that's not always palatable to us. When we think about what God asks of us, what he calls wisdom, sometimes we genuinely struggle with it. And I got to be perfectly honest with you. Sometimes when I read the scriptures, 
particularly about not having women on the board of elders of our church. Some of the wisest people I know are women. And they would make great elders in our church. But no matter how I read the scripture, I cannot justify that. And God has made it plain in his word that there is to be male leadership in the church and in the home. Do I struggle with that? Do I kind of wonder why God? Sure. But I'm committed to the truth that this is wisdom. This is wisdom. And as we follow it, we know the blessing and the life-giving blessing of God in our lives. So when God says some things that are not palatable, it's our obligation simply to acquiesce to God. Submit to him in your marriage. That's a hard one. Love her unconditionally. That's even harder. <laughs> From my experience. Forgive. Lavishly. Embrace biblically defined gender roles. Delay your gratification. Turn the other cheek. I struggled with this one. Tithe is part of a wise financial strategy. Discipline my children as the Bible requires me. Be authentic, transparent about my sin, and be accountable. And again, the list could go on. See, sometimes what God says, we struggle with it. We struggle. It, it's not palatable. It's not easily embraced. But we got to realize that what might sound counterintuitive and what is clearly countercultural is, in fact, the wisdom of God. So here's the point this is why the person, the wise person, always trusts, always trusts in the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. You will never find a wise man or woman who doubts the truth of God's word. Ever, ever, ever. If you begin doubting anything of what God says in his word, James says it will be like waves of the ocean. will have no foundation. will be driven here and there by the winds of relativism, relativism and postmodern anti-absolutism. We'll have no firm foundation. That's why James says that a double-minded man, double-minded woman, is unstable in all of his or her ways. The word double-minded literally means to be of two minds or to have two opinions about one subject. And it's just not a good place to be. I, I've grown up at cottages all my life, and I learned really early as a young little, little boy that you want to have two feet on the dock or two feet in the boat. But if you have one foot on, in, on the dock and one foot on the boat, it's not going to end well. I learned that a couple of times as a kid, and, and now I know. And the same thing is true of us. If we think that we can have one foot firmly planted in the word of God and one foot firmly planted in our culture and the wisdom of this world, earthly wisdom, it won't end well. And the Bible says that we will receive nothing from God, no wisdom, 
No wisdom because we will be doubters. We'll be questioning. When we reject the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, we reject the wisdom of God. When we reject the inspiration of Scripture, we set ourselves up as presuming to be as wise as, if not wiser than, God. So when we try to synthesize the word and the values of our culture, don't, respect, don't expect to receive anything from the Lord. When we try to amalgamate earthly wisdom with God's wisdom, we end up in error and in huge suffering. So if you believe that the word of God is the conduit to wisdom, is the conduit to truth, we must come to that place in our spiritual journey where we bow the knee to the doctrine of the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture. We just gotta stop doubting this. We've got to accept it as true, as God's revealed truth for us. One of the things that we need to understand is that when we ask God for wisdom, he doesn't some, simply kind of open our cranium magically and pour in a little wisdom, then close our head back down again, right? There, there is a way in which he imparts wisdom to us, and the scriptures are always the source. Sometimes it's talking to a Christian friend who will take the Bible and open a passage of scripture and show you something. Sometimes it's sitting under the preaching of the word. Sometimes it's quietly opening your Bible and praying and, and seeking God personally and, and, and quietly and in solitude. Sometimes it's listening to a podcast, sometimes, but it always, always, always will involve the word of God. It'll always involve a scripture reference. It'll always involve God's truth. The God who created us has given us all that we need for life and godliness. And if you brought your Bible this morning, you have it in your hands. All that you need for life and godliness. He has given us a prescription for living. And so when we choose to do life God's way, especially in those times of testing and trial and difficulty, when he is disciplining us and he is taking us through those difficult valleys of life, you gotta hang on. How do you do it? You go to the word and you ask God sincerely and honestly, Lord, I don't know what to do. I'm struggling right now. I'm wrestling with this issue. Show me. And what does the Bible say? He, God cannot not answer that prayer. He has committed himself. He has given a promise to give us wisdom. And as we live out that wisdom, as we understand and act upon what God says is true, then we will know blessing in that experience, in that moment. And then fourthly, he says this. In order to have wisdom, we need to see ourselves from God's perspective. We need the wisdom to see ourselves from God's perspective. Now, when you look at verses 9 through 11, you might think to yourself, well, obviously here, James is changing the subject. Because he's not talking about wisdom and he's not talking about steadfastness. But I really believe he is because that's why I read verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. This idea of steadfastness is, is being woven through the passage. 
And so verses 9 through 11 speak to this issue about wisdom and the necessity of wisdom for steadfastness. Let's read them together. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. His flower falls, his beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. I think what James is saying to us is if we're to have wisdom, we've got to define ourselves from God's perspective. So how do verses 9 and 11 connect to this whole idea of wisdom and steadfastness? Well, we need to go back and think again, as we talked last week in the introduction, about who James is writing to. He's writing to people who have experienced significant persecution, primarily in Jerusalem, people who are now scattered throughout various areas in Israel and throughout the Roman Empire, people living in difficult circumstances. Most of them are struggling. Most of them are poor. Most of them have left their businesses. Most of them have fled their homes. Most of them are living like refugees. A few of them are wealthy and self-sufficient. So James speaks to the poor. And he says, if you're living in modest circumstances, lacking influence and power, boast in your exaltation. In other words, if you are living in a difficult trial right now and you are living hand to mouth, you're living a subsistence living and you don't have a job, you don't have a ton of wealth and you don't know where your next meal is coming from, boast in your exaltation. What is their exaltation? Boast in who you are in Christ. Boast in your salvation. Boast in the fact that you are now a blood-bought child of the living God. Boast in the fact that the spirit of God dwells in you. Boast in the fact that you are deeply loved by the God of Israel through the new covenant that has been established through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Boast in the fact that you're a joint heir with Christ. He's reminding them that when you're in the trials of life and facing the challenges of life, remember this. Remember who you are. Remember how God defines you. And he's saying, don't let your trials, don't let your circumstances define you. Don't let what you don't have define you. Wisdom says, always says, remember. Remember who you are. Never forget who you are as a child of God. And it's sheer folly It's absolute foolishness to allow anyone or anything else other than God and his word to define us. A test score, a failure, a setback, a disability, a menial job, someone else's opinion of you should never, ever define you. What defines us is that we are blood-bought children of God, deeply loved and treasured by the God of all creation, who loves us with an eternal passion, an unconditional love that will never, ever, ever cease. But what do we do? 
What were these people doing? Well, they were looking at themselves through the lens of their circumstances. They were looking at themselves through the lens of their life. They were defining themselves by what they didn't have. And James is just simply saying, don't do this. See yourself through the lens of God's perspective. And you know what? When you do, you'll be able to hang on just that little bit longer. Just that little bit longer in steadfastness and perseverance and endurance. And endurance will have its effect, its full effect. And you will be perfected and matured and complete, lacking in nothing. And then he speaks to the rich brother, the rich sister, the smaller group, and he tells them to boast in their humiliation. Boast in your humiliation. So what is their humiliation? The humiliation for every rich person, and I'm defining all of us as rich, basically, is that no matter how rich, no matter how powerful, no matter how much we have acquired in life and accrued to ourselves, our humiliation is the inherent, absolute inherent insecurity of life. The reality is that right now I am one heartbeat and one breath away from eternity. And welcome to the club. We all are. No matter what you have, no matter the size of your bank account, no matter the size of your house, no matter the security of your job, you're one breath, one heartbeat away from eternity right now. And James makes this point by quoting Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 7 and 8, he kind of conflates it into this statement in verse, 11, verse 10 and 11. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so will be the rich man who fades away in the midst of his pursuit. Now, all of, all of James' Jewish readers would have known exactly where that passage of Scripture came from. And they would have known exactly what was in the previous chapter, chapter 39 of the book of Isaiah. And what was in that passage of scripture? Well, it's a story about how envoys from the king of Babylon come to see King Hezekiah. And what does King Hezekiah do? King Hezekiah opens up all his storehouses and all his vaults and he, he shows them, he brags about his wealth. He shows them his gold and his silver and his spices and his horses and all of the things that have been accumulated in the history of Israel over these last many hundreds of years. And he brags about them all. And then Isaiah comes into the king after the envoys leave and he says this to the king, Hezekiah, all that you have all that your fathers have stored up, all your wealth, even your sons will be taken from you and shipped off to Babylon. And that is exactly what happened. But 150 years later. You see, James wants his rich readers to understand and to consider their inclination to boast in what they possess, to define themselves by what they possess, to find their identity and their security in what they possess what they own and what they have accrued to themselves and forget about the fact that they are one heartbeat away from eternity. Psalm 90 
probably the most humble man that ever lived besides Jesus, said this, Moses, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I want you to turn with me if you have your Bibles to, as we close this morning to Luke chapter 12. And I want, you, I want to read this parable to you and then we'll be done. Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 16. Jesus told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I find it fascinating that Jesus calls this guy in the parable a fool. A fool. It is so foolish to define ourselves by either what we don't have or what we do have. So how do we define ourselves? How do we remain steadfast under trial so that ultimately we will receive, as he says in verse 12, that crown of life? Well, we define ourselves through the cross. It's the only way that we can define ourselves wisely. Who are we in our weakness, in our frailty, in our lack, in our poverty? Who are we in our wealth and in our abundance? Who are we? We are blood-bought children of God, purchased by the blood of Jesus. And at the foot of the cross, the ground is absolutely level. It's absolutely level. We're just kids in the family of God. That's who we are. And it's that, more than anything else, that allows us to persevere in the trials that we're going through. When it feels like God has abandoned us, we're kids in the family of God, and we're loved. When it feels that we can't hang on any longer, we've tied, we've tied the rope at the end of our knot, and we're holding on to that truth, and we don't know how much longer we can hang on, we remember we're loved by the God who created the universe. We remember that our lives are but a vapor. We're like a mist. We're here and we're gone into his presence. And that strengthens our grip. It allows us to hang on that little bit longer. And as we do, perseverance has its full effect. And in that moment... Hanging on at the end of our rope, God is changing, God is shaping, God is building character, God is taking things out of our lives that shouldn't be there and replacing them with values and qualities and perspectives that should. So, 
We need wisdom. We need wisdom to know that we're not wise. It's not intuitive. It doesn't come naturally. It's not intelligence or intuition or common sense. We need wisdom to seek wisdom, therefore. To be passionate about it. And to embrace God's wisdom, which is truth, regardless of how unpalatable and challenging it might be to embrace. It is God's truth to us. He created us. He has given us a prescription for living. So trust him and obey. And lastly, we need the wisdom to see ourselves from God's perspective. Why don't you pray with me and let's ask God to give us that grace in our lives. Father God, we know that your testimonies are sure, that they make wise the simple. We happily come before you this morning and confess that we are not wise, that we need your wisdom. And so we ask for it this morning. We ask that you would graciously give it to us. Some of us are facing tough decisions in our journey. Some of us are facing challenges. Some of us are hanging on to the end of our rope. And we need you to speak to us. We need you to open our minds to understand more clearly what it is that you want us to do, the path that you want us to walk. I pray, Father, from your word that you would show us. And Lord, when we struggle, when it seems hard, when I'm told to love unconditionally, to submit respectfully, to discipline my kids the way that you say, to tithe, to do these things, Lord, that we wrestle with. Help us to remember that this is your word. It's truth. It's inspired. It's inerrant. And then, Lord, help us to see ourselves the way you do. Not through the lens of our want or through the lens of our wealth but to see ourselves as blood-bought children of God, loved, chosen before the foundation of the world, adopted into the family of God, held tightly in the hollow of your hand. I thank you, Lord, that that's where we are. And I pray, Father, if there's a man or a woman in this room who doesn't know that to be true of them, that they have never come to that place where they have just simply rested in the finished work of the cross, they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, had their sins forgiven, I pray, Father, that you would open hearts and minds today, open eyes, let them simply just trust Jesus and be saved, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.